Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jamil John Kochai, author of the short story collection, The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories. For me, it's always been sort of just as important to capture and to understand and to explore the the after effects of, of violence. We'll be back with Jamil John Kochai after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there, and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. 
The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Jamil John Kochai, author of the short story collection, The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories, and the novel 99 Nights in Logar, which was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Novel and the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature. Kochai was born in an Afghanistan refugee camp in Pakistan, but his family is from Logar, Afghanistan. His short stories and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and The Best American Short Stories 2021, among others. The tales in The Haunting of Haji Hotak and other stories primarily take place in Afghanistan and the United States. Kochai's contemporary Afghan characters move between their history and memories of life in Afghanistan and modern life, mostly in California. The stories verge on comedy as they reveal violence and tragedy from a country torn by war and philosophical allegiances. The themes of displacement, ghosts, family separation, and the legacy of war are present in every story. We began our discussion with me asking Jamil John Kochai this question. So I walked away from this book with this sense that this was a very intimate blending of the personal and the fictive. Um, So this blending of personal and fiction, but I don't want to assume that that's just how I felt when I left and uh, when I closed the book. And so I just wanted to ask you about that. Like if that is a fair reading, but also if that is true, how do you go about facing your fiction with so much personal involved? Well, you know, it's funny. I I just don't know if I know of any other way to write, really. I mean, um, there there are a few stories that, like, they you know, they're not they're not autobiographical or, or personal at all. They deal with personal issues and that sort of thing. But largely, um, most of the stories, to some degree, are related to my my personal life, my family members, um, my 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 family's home village uh, back in Logar. Uh, or, or to my extended family, and so, so for me, that's that's where all, all of my stories have begun. I, I I draw from real life, and then, um, and then, and then I try to see where the story takes me. And so that's why, you know, I think that's why that's why I'm not like a personal essayist or or writing nonfiction. Is because um, I feel like fiction, even when I'm writing autobiographically or writing these very personal or intimate topics. Um, fiction sort of allows me to go wherever I want with it. And I find that I find that incredibly liberating and then also um, oddly comforting at the same time, because I don't have to I don't always have to face 
my <laughs> my personal issues or my personal history or my family's history head on. I can go through different routes. So one of the things that I was struck with when I was reading this was that it was it took me to a world that was so different. And I think so many people in America have a lot of assumptions about Afghanistan and what it's like to be Muslim or just what it's like to to have gone through like the Soviets and the Americans and the Taliban. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if there's any cultural things that you want people to know before they open the book that could help them of their read of it. I think one of the the main things that at least I try to capture in the book is that um, is this sort of uh, this 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 dark humor that I grew up with my entire life, and so for for me, you know, in my household, I grew up with a lot of war stories. My my family escaped from the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, and so um, they they carried a lot of that trauma with them here, you know, in in the states, and and as I was growing up, and so you would hear a lot of these very very harrowing, um, sometimes horrifying stories about 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 the violence of war bombings and these sorts of things. But what 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 they always remain true to, even even while telling those stories, or or maybe immediately after telling one of those stories, is um is there is their sense of humor? Like I come from an incredibly funny family, and I think in general, like that's a uh, that's a trait of um, of us Afghans that a lot of people don't know about is that we're you know we're very we're very humorous people we're very funny people we love to joke around and it's it's this thing where and it's this particular type of humor I think as well where um, uh, uh, where it, we, we're not really <laughs> where, uh, I would say especially my family we're not afraid to go into dark places in our humor as well and so you know I'm not sure if that's like like a like a like a psychological defense mechanism or or if it's just a way to 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 rethink the trauma or whatever else or that's just an element of the storytelling in general but but that's one of the, the you know sort of uh, i think unique um elements uh, the, uh of my own family's tradition of storytelling that i've tried to capture in my own book so I wanted to start, if we could, by talking about the story Occupational Hazards. So this story is almost like a diary entry, and it starts in 1996, and you cover like vast years in some of them. So for instance, the first entry is 1966 to 1980, and you work your way up to 2016 to 2019. So you begin by describing uh, someone who's who's a sheep herder, who who's in the pastures in Afghanistan near the Black Mountains, near Logar, who is naming each sheep after the prophets from the Quran, to Mm -hmm. this person who is perhaps your father? Yeah, yeah, that's a good... (laughs) Who is your father? And we're, we're watching him go through grade school and his family's um, connections and the regimes that he's under and fighting schoolboys, And then we, we see him becoming a farmer and we see him moving to Kabul uh, from, from the country. And we see him eventually uh, becoming a merchant and then becoming a high school student and then being a recruit for the Mujahid to back to Logar, where you're from, to transporting a bomb. And then we learn about later he 
has all these injuries. I think he, when he basically, when he makes it, he's a laborer, he makes it to Pakistan to an, uh, a refugee camp. And then eventually he, he makes it to first to Alabama and then to California. And we learn about the work he has where he's making three fifty an hour or working at Seven Eleven, or driving in an, in an accident where he's permanently injured and has pain for his whole life and trying to sue the company. And then moving to you, writing your first novel with him helping you and going over like the death of his brother. And so I just wanted to ask you, about writing this story, I felt like when I read it, it grounded me so much in the rest of the book because there's other characters that come up throughout the book that seem to be from your real life. And I learned so much about you that I almost was like, oh my gosh, like I felt like I knew you in a whole different way and it changed how I read the rest of the book. Hey, you know, the uh, occupational hazards, it's one of those stories when I, where I, when I went into it, I knew it was going to like encompass a, a large swath of time. And I knew that it was also going to be dealing with a lot of, a lot of personal issues and a lot of my personal family history, especially my father's um, uh, personal history. And so, you know, it was one of those stories where, um, where I was very, I was very hesitant to write it initially, um, not only because of the content, but also because of the form itself. Like the, when I, when I started thinking about writing the story that was going to be sort of in the format of a resume, I was, I was very worried about it. You know, I, I thought, you know, is it too gimmicky? Is it gonna, uh, you know, is it, um, how how will I be able to focus on on character and on story if I'm sort of locking everything up within this very sort of I, I felt like at the time very restrictive form and so so th so there were a lot of reasons why like I almost didn't finish this story but um, but you know lo and behold I was able I was able to I was able to put it together in the end and um, and it, it was just it was one of those things where you know I would I used to I used to do these interviews with my father about his life and um, and one thing in particular that I noticed was that like he had this incredible resume of, of of job occupations that he had you know starting from you know being a farmer and a, and, and a sheep herder when he was very young all the way on to you know um uh going on to become like a like a like a, a lawn care specialist when he was when he was in his 40s and so just that fact in and of itself like i i thought like here's a story that's going to it's going to encompass a lot of time and it's going to explore this character's relationship to to violence and to his family but most especially to labor uh, and and the way that his identity would be rooted in these different forms of labor and how how does one then try to break out of that once 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 you once you're made physically incapable of, of taking part in labor right and so 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 it i think in a lot of ways it i, I because i was able to root that story um uh, in the character of my father like it became that, I think that was sort of my my impetus, my my drive to finish it in the end. Yeah, it's so powerful, I think, for someone who's so foreign to what it's like to grow up in Afghanistan under so much violence to read all that and think about what your dad is carrying and, and what you inherited from that, either yeah. like literally in your DNA or just the mm -hmm. stories that formed you. And so 
I'm I'm curious how he reacted to this. I mean, obviously you've been talking to him about this story and if writing it in this format made you look at things in any new way. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, first of all, like his, uh, uh, my father, he's been, you know, incredibly, incredibly supportive of my work in general, um, you know, which was, which was like a great anxiety of mine when I first began to write. Uh, fiction and, and when I first began to write these stories that were going to be centered uh, upon his life and and his family members and and our family at large and so um, you know I've always been I've just so I, I've just I've tried to be very careful about like being very respectful of the stories and so before I write anything that's like directly engaging with his life or his past like I make sure that I go and I talk to him about it and we have like a frank conversation and so um, with this story in particular like uh, and my father has a very <laughs> He has a very interesting relationship with storytelling in particular, like for him, um, you know, I'm a fiction writer. So I'm like, once we can, you know, if, if a couple of things are a little bit like, you know, out of whack or if I'm, you know, taking liberties here and there, like that's not a huge issue for me. But for him, it, when I was going over the story with him, he was very adamant about like getting all the dates right and making sure, you know, I got all the locations right. And and so he would be like, no, no, you can't do that. And, uh, and you have to switch that up here. And if it wasn't a big thing, I, I'd just be, i just sort of nod my head and be like, okay. And then <laughs> sort of leave it as is. Um, but um, but yeah, in general, like, um, uh, you know, my, my, my father, my father's been, been very supportive and, and I think he like, he, he and the other thing is he, um, he likes to take part in it as well, which I find, which I found like very, um, very moving because, you know, my, my father's very important to me in a lot of ways. And so the interest that he's taken in my work has been, um, has been incredible as well. And did you find that adding it up in the way that you did, by years and duties leading all the way up to your adulthood writing made you maybe see patterns or see it in different way? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's the scope of 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 the story itself that was sort of like really, you know, um, that was really sort of eye opening for me. You know, when I went into the story, I had this vague idea of like how many jobs my father had had throughout his life and the variety of those jobs and the different locations that he'd gone to to take part in those jobs and how arduous many of those different forms of labor were but it wasn't until like i actually like put you know pens to paper or, or i guess my fingers to the keypad that and i and i when i wrote it all down in this list that like the the immensity of it was was very you know it it, it, it was it was eye opening in this in this strange way and you know the funny thing about it is that there are there actually like there there are actually jobs and locations and places that I had to actually just cut out of the story because it was getting too long and um and uh, and and it was just veering off into these very very odd directions and so like in many ways like my father's my father's actual life my father's actual work history is more incredible than this story you know there's this whole episode where he where he went to Iran and he worked in an orchard that I had to cut out because it was just it was going to explode the story and so um so you know the, the the scope of it itself I think um it, it it allowed me to see to see my father's life um, in this new way and, 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 and to begin to, you know, put together, um, everything that he'd gone through leading up to this point where, where, you know, he, now, now he's in West Sacramento, ostensibly, um, retired in a sense. There are two things that really stuck out from that, that I see in the rest of the book. One 
is the death of his brother. I think when his brother was 16, he was killed by the Soviets by the river. And you have a character with that name in other stories who gets killed. So I guess I'm curious what it was like growing up with that story as part of your family's legacy. It strikes me that it must have been so important to what you knew growing up because it is in so many of these stories? The, the story of Watuk's death, like, it's it's a story that really, um, I think it, it haunted our, our family as a whole. You know, I, 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 in, the, in the past, I've sort of, um, I've re- I referred to Watuk as sort of our most beloved ghost. His his photograph um, from when he was 16 years old, it's the, it's, it's one of only two photographs that we have of him. It, it hangs on, on the wall in our prayer room, and it's hung there, um, you know, for years and years and years. And so uh, growing up, um, you know, whenever I would finish a prayer, I, I would look back on this on this mysterious figure named Watuk, who I'd never known, but who I knew uh, had had this incredible impact on not only you know my my father's life and his and his relationship to to death and um and and, and to loss and, and to mourning and, and the way that he carried that death with him throughout throughout the rest of his life up until this day, but also like the trajectory of our family as a whole, right? Because that was a story that. You know, even now, it's it's a story that like I never I've never heard the whole story of the death of Watuk because it's it's a story that it, it contains so much power. It's it's such a difficult story for my family members to tell um, that that I've only ever gotten like bits and pieces of it. And so for large swaths of my childhood and then, you know, once I began writing as well. Um, a lot of a lot of um, the energy that I put into my storytelling was was trying to figure out how to put these pieces together, right? And and it's one of those things where where you understand the the immensity of that event because it was it was immediately after the death of Watuk that my family like finally decided that that they'd had enough. Like up until that point they were confident resisting the occupation. Like they were, you know, my my father he he'd um he he was uh, he was helping the mujahideen. Uh, so, so were other members of our family. Um, the the village as a whole sort of put their support behind the mujahideen, and um, and you know they were they were happy to to resist for the sake of of country and 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 their land and their and their family members. Um, but after that death, that was sort of the breaking point for for my family, and that was the death that that it really tr- like went into the decision to actually flee the country and and to eventually arrive here in America. So so I so so even from a young age I understood that like our journey as a family it it all originates with with that with that key loss and that you know um what my my professor at at UC Davis um he would he would tell us that every single uh poem has has a wound at the heart of it. And, uh, and I think like when it comes to, and I think that's true of stories as well. And so when it comes to the story of my family, I think, I think the death of what took is that it's that wound at the heart of our story. So the other thing you write about in, in here, but in many of your stories, and we'll move on to some of those in, in a minute is violence. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm curious about sort of this duality with violence. One is like just holding it like just living mm-hmm. as a person with these stories from your father and knowing what's happened to your homeland, like how you kind of hold that every day. And then yeah, secondly, absolutely. 
just writing about violence because you want to, I think, you want to really impact your reader, but you also need a balance with something else or it, it would probably be too much. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, you know, um, and that's and that's the thing is that um, I think it, it, like in the past, I've, I've read a great deal or, or or in cinema, especially. Right. The the Im- the immediate impact of, of violence, right. The, the physical impact of violence, uh, uh, the, the violence of war or, or of occupation or of a bombing or whatever else it was. Um, but for me, you know, and I think that's all very important to, to be able to capture that. But for me, it's always been sort of just as important to capture and to understand and to explore the the after effects of, of violence as as well you know and so that's something like you know for for the longest time in my household growing up like i'd known that my my parents and my grandparents and my and my other family members that they'd lived through this immense the in, immense violence that they'd witnessed this this immense carnage you know taking part right in front of them it, it happened to their family members it happened on their very doorsteps right and 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 just as you say right like it's it's something that they hold with them their their entire lives it's 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 in their mannerisms it's in their um it's in their storytelling i remember one time i was in logar this was in 2012 and i was with my extended family and um and all of a sudden we heard this this whistling sound in the distance and and everybody else in my family they immediately ducked uh and I, so we're all eating dinner and they all ducked down and i'm the only one still like sitting up and and it's because all the rest of them uh they they understood that it, it was a sound it was like the distance whistling of a rocket at the time like there was still um the, the war was still ongoing and um and they understood that and they not only understood that like you know on an intellectual level but like on a physical instinctual level they understood this is the sound of a rocket we have to go down and and so that's so not only so that's something that like you know they all carried with them and it's something that like to a certain degree like i think like they they passed down onto me and in the way that i i understand storytelling but it's also something where i've always been very conscious of the gap in my experience versus like my family members experiences right and so and that's always been something that's been very difficult for me to grapple with it's this um i think it's this it's this gulf in in experiences this gulf is this massive gap in experience and in communication and it's this way that i think like you know uh, in a lot of ways uh, uh, as a son as a grandson um even as like uh, as a nephew right my one of my things is like uh, i want to be able to communicate and to be able to to understand like my my family members pain like what they'd gone through and it, 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 but but there's but there's but one of the things that it took me a long time to come to terms with is this um is this understanding of like that there's certain elements of what they've gone through that I'm just never going to be able to comprehend. And, and and so, and that's part of the after effects of violence as well. Like it, it creates this gulf, it can, creates this gap between you and everyone else who, who hasn't known that, that violence and that trauma. And so for me, and especially with my father, like, you know, it, it, I think most of my life I've spent trying my best to, to understand him and to empathize with him. Um, but, but I always known that there's this, 
right? There's this, there's, there's this thing inside of him that he can't express and that he's still grappling with, dealing with to this day. And that's always been very difficult to me. And so I think in a lot of my stories, I try to, I try to explore that, that gulf, that gap in, in understanding and in communication. And so, you know, um, and, and, you know, and when it comes to like depicting violence in particular in my stories, um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a funny thing. I, I was I was in a workshop um, recently uh, at Stanford uh, with with my Stegner fellows, this this really great, brilliant group of other writers, and um, and they'd read quite a few of my stories up to that point. And I'd written this story, and in the story, there's a very sort of um, uh, a visceral, uh, very very physical fight scene, and it's and it's one man beating another man. And and they and they noticed, you know, they all sort of agreed that like I very rarely write about violence in that way, in that very physical sort of. Let me just show you exactly what's happening. And when I look back at my stories, it was something that I didn't notice about myself. But when I look back at my stories, I think it is, you know, it's true to a certain degree that when I'm when I'm approaching violence or when I'm thinking through violence, it's always sort of through through different mediums. Like I try to, I think I try to, I try to get at like the. The, the the surreal nature of violence, like the the unreality of violence. I try to I try to understand like um, violence violence as it's passed in storytelling or violence as it's experienced in media. And I think um, and I think it's it's been difficult for me up to this point to write about actual physical violence on the page without sort of summarizing it, especially to write it in scene. And so that's been um, you know that's just something that I've noticed about myself, and I think that's something that um, you know, as I continue writing, I do wonder if that's a place that I'm going to have to go at some point in my writing that it that it might be a little bit scary. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand what you're saying about like for you, like you were saying, you're really interested in the after effects of violence. And yeah. so when you write about it and some of these stories, that's what you're writing about it. You're getting at it, not from like in scene where someone's like mm-hmm. hurting someone, like an example yeah. is your story return to sender where right. you have these two doctors that are from America and they go back because they want to help um, in Afghanistan and their son is missing and they're slowly being mailed his body parts or they're basically someone's knocking on the door and dropping off his body parts. And so that seems like an example of coming to it after we're just looking at how these people are dealing with it. We don't even know exactly what happened to their son, but we also learn from other stories in there that so many young boys end up being abducted and used for sex and murdered. Um, That's right. So just wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that story, return to sender. Yeah, you know that's that's one of those stories that um, you know I, I was I was when I began writing that story, um, it, it was something where like I I figured out the characters fairly quickly, and uh, which is which is always very exciting for me, right? You know, I've got a character and they're not a family member, and and so that's all that's always very exciting for me when I'm able to sort of accomplish that. Um, but but you know that story, it, it's it's a uh, it's a it, it went through an interesting process in terms of like how how it came to fruition. Initially, um, I'd written the story as a poem, and it was just this very short poem about a woman 
opening a door and receiving um, a package uh, uh, containing like the, the the finger of her child, and then and then whispering to the finger to try to figure out where where the rest of the the, the child is. And so and so you know uh, and 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 that of course it's it's also to a certain degree rooted in reality, right? That's a, that's a thing that's you know I've heard. I've, it's, it's, I've heard these horror stories of of children getting kidnapped and then and then they send them back their their body parts to to get the ransom faster, and um and it's and it becomes this incredibly desperate situation and so um and so for me you know when I'm when I'm thinking about uh, a a story like that and when I'm thinking about something as horrific and as surreal as uh, as mutilation right like like the the, the the what what can happen to to the human body when when violence is inflicted upon it right and um uh, when i think about that it's it's very difficult for me as a writer i think to sort of face that head on you know i think there are other writers that are probably you know more braver than myself that can do that sort of writing but for me when i'm thinking about that sort of a story when i'm thinking about that sort of violence um i i sort of i think i feel like i have to sort of go at it from a different lens from a different route and so for me it turns the the, the story then very quickly turns into this more it's it's it sort of approaches surrealism it's it's almost like um it's like magical realism and i knew that I that the that the story needed to sort of approach this this different realm of reality, and you know, the, so the the pieces are being sent one at a time, and then and then I I, I was watching the character of the mother very closely, and I was like, and I wanted and I wanted to understand how she would respond to this horrific event, right? The, the father responds very differently, right? He, he runs out into the streets immediately and he goes off on sort of this um, hopeless chase to find the killer. But the mother immediately, not immediately, but in a quicker way, begins to understand that something different is happening here and that, and that, they've, that, they're, that they've now approached a different realm of of understanding or of, of, of experience. And, and so she begins to sort of, she goes with what the story wants, with what the story is, with what's happening in the story, and and she begins to put, you know, the 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 body of the child back together. And so, so for me, you know, it was, it, it, uh, and I think this happens in many of my stories. It's it's me sort of grappling with and trying to understand, you know, the the horror of this, these different forms of violence, especially when it comes to war, especially when it comes to occupation, and, and trying to approach it in a new way and trying to see how, how I can understand these characters in a totally different way. So you mentioned twice now about being brave enough to, to write it in a different way, like more directly. And I just wanted yeah. to ask uh, what that's about. When I read something, for example, like like Cormac McCarthy's uh, Blood Meridian, for example, and I think that's that's a novel that's like it's 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 an incredibly horrifying novel, and and I think certain certain elements of that novel it it, it approaches the absurd. He approaches and depicts violence in this head-on way that that I that I find that I find admirable, and I and and that 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 I myself I think uh, you know it's. It's difficult for me to sort of imagine how one goes about writing violence in that manner. But I think there's also a certain part of me that that thinks or or wonders, you know, eventually when I'm writing my my big book, I think at some point I'm going to write a big book about 
the wars in Afghanistan. And, and I think that at a certain point, like I, I sort of understand in myself that I'm that I'm going to I'm going to be forced to approach the violence in a more direct manner, right? That I'm going to have to stand in the place of my character, and I'm going to have to approach this violence or watch my characters commit horrific acts of violence. And, and that to me, it's like, um, it's it's very unnerving to, to think that I that at a certain point, I'm going to have to write a story like that. It's, it's precisely because I find it unnerving that I find it a little bit scary, that I think it's it's going to be necessary at a certain point as well. When you think about writing something like that, does that feel like mm-hmm. more present tense than past tense? Like, I'm just wondering how, like, yeah. for instance, with Return yeah. to Sender, it is more after the fact. So it's the past. But if that yeah. affects like your heart differently. No, I think that's exactly like time is a is a dramatically big factor in it. Right. Because in, in Return to Sender, which I think. Is in many ways, it's it's probably the the most violent story I've written. You know, I, I guess there could be some argument there, but um, but but certainly in a certain respect, like the most horrifying. I think it's the story that approaches horror more so than than my other stories. And so, and I think that's exactly it. Like it's the after effects of violence, it's the past of violence, and and then the other thing that I'm doing there is that you know, uh, when, when the after effects, when the, you know, the, the artifact of the violence, the, 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 the dismembered body, it, it approaches the character when it, when it arrives at the doorstep of the character, what I, what I then do is that, uh, I, I change reality itself, right? Like I don't, you know, I, I, all of a sudden the story turns into a completely different genre. It becomes something approaching the fantastic. It becomes something approaching like magical realism or, or something like, something like surrealist literature. Right. And, and I think part of that, that part of the reason why I do that is because I, I find it difficult to sort of comprehend the actual fact of violence itself, especially as you say, like violence in the present tense when it's the when it's the actual act of violence being committed uh, th- that's very that's been very difficult for me to sort of visualize and and to articulate and and to put on the page in a way that i found you know satisfactory so I want to point out, too, that this is not all violence, <laughs> that your book is not all <laughs> violence, you. but you you are talking about it. And there's a lot of characters that have very deep faith. You have one story mm-hmm. that's like rooted in that faith that we can talk mm-hmm. about, but it also is sprinkled in every story is like a deep faith, a deep, deep praying to Allah, deep honor for the religion. And in one of the stories called The Tale of Dully's Reversion, it's a very long story and we can talk about it in a minute, but you have a line in there where you write, he wondered why God had made humans so malleable, so soft, only to be torn apart on highways or systematically mutilated in dark chambers and black sites at the hands of beloved men until the mind could no longer comprehend the suffering of the body and destroyed itself. And so I was wondering about the relationship between this strong belief in God and violence. I mean, I think it's something that comes up in every single religion, no matter what it is you believe in, like why did God bring war? It would be the overall question. So I just want to ask you about that. 
you know, I think it makes a lot of sense <laughs> to ask this question after after we sort of had this discussion about violence, because I think also, you know, when it when it comes to like my fear of of writing violence in this direct manner, I think it's sort of rooted in that in that line itself. When I'm approaching topics of violence, and then and then beyond that, like um, when I'm thinking through like sort of more theological the, you know, theological questions regarding like you know the islam and, and 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 the nature of creation and the nature of existence and 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 god right like th that's one of the things that i have sort of you know as as a believer as, as um as a muslim um you know as a practicing muslim that's one of the i think the the central things that i've had to grapple with in my in my faith this is is this sort of this 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 the, it what feels like a contradiction between um the the what what I what I love about Islam what I love about Allah it, it, you know the the mercy of Allah the 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 infinite love of Allah um but then also the the you know the 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 actual fact of violence and not just um you know it's it's funny because for so long you know as a child uh, I'd grown up so afraid of, of of zombies and and vampires and Freddy Krueger and all these things, but but the more and more you know as an adult, the more and more like I do did research into like war crimes and uh, and the different things that occur um, you know throughout throughout the throughout the throughout the events of of an occupation uh, or of a civil war or whatever else it is like the, that horror. It's it's a different type of horror. It's 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 almost incomprehensible form of horror, right? Um, especially the things that that had occurred in Afghanistan during the during the civil wars. It's it's um it's almost sort of like um impossible to to understand to comprehend. And and so so for me, you know, what I'm thinking through th that story in particular, I think a lot of the struggles that Dully is having with his faith. Um, and with his understanding of of Islam and of God, it's it's sort of a, a reflection of of what I'm grappling with as a writer as well. Um, in in terms of this immense violence on one side, uh, but then this immense sense, this immense you know this 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 desire to move towards something approaching you know mercy and and love on the other, and and how does one how does one you know bring that together and or does does one need to you know bring that together so basically uh this story is the story of a young man and his parents and they live in the US and basically the son has not been praying lately or at least they think he hasn't been praying lately and right. he turns into a monkey and so the mother goes back to Afghanistan with the monkey son to try to figure out. Basically, she thinks if she sees can see this imam, it'll help turn the kid back into the human. That's right. And so yeah. she goes with the monkey and then her husband is all pissed off. And so he stops in Egypt and gathers his other child and the child's his son's wife and comes to follow her. And meanwhile, they're going back to the, these villages and she's going back to see an old crush who has a lot of power working yeah. on the American side. And then there's the Taliban and the monkey joins the Taliban. It starts praying, uh, becomes this like model monkey. And I read that story and I was like, wow, like what is going on in his head? 
when he was writing this. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there's anything about the story I didn't describe that you wanted to describe and sort of the genesis and what you were exploring. Yeah, you know, that's a story that I, you know, I struggled with a good deal, you know, and I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit more about this later on, um, you know, in our conversation. But, um, but so it, it, essentially, this story, and it's this is part of the reason why it's a very, it's a very beloved story to me, I think it's like, out of all the stories in the collection, I think that that's the one that's closest to my heart, is because when I was little, my grandmother used to tell us that, you know, if you pass, if you cross the, the path, you know, the front of a Johnny Maz while a person was praying on it, right? If, that that was a sin. And not only was it a sin, but that you would you would turn into a monkey by by doing that, right? And that's the prayer rug. That's the prayer rug, yes. Okay. That's right. And so and so as a child, that's something that like I very faithfully believed. Like I honestly thought that, you know, I was very careful about not crossing the path of a prayer rug when someone was praying because I thought like I would turn into a monkey. And so so years and years and years later, you know, when I'm when I'm sort of conceptualizing this story for the first time, I'm I'm like, okay, like, let's write this story. What would happen if, you know, someone actually did turn into a monkey? And then and then it became sort of this process of then figuring out the the characters, right? And so actually figuring out the character of Dolly took me some time because it was sort of this process of like trying to figure out to whom would transforming into a monkey uh, because they crossed the prayer rug, like who, who would find that like sort of, who would respond to that in the most interesting way? And for me, it was it, it was going to be like a PhD student who would become sort of very miserable in their a study in their life within academia. Who, um, because of their intense focus on on research and on you know writing and all these sorts of things, had lost touch with their own uh, you know their own body, their physical body had lost touch with their sort of sense of spirituality. And um, and I was like that's the person that I'm going to turn into a monkey. And so, and so from then on, it was a story that went through like a numerous, like so many different drafts. And, um, and, and, and so it, it's one of those stories that I think in a lot of ways, I think captured um, my <laughs> uh, most accurately captured sort of the, the storytelling tradition that I'd grown up with, because it's, you know, it's monkeys, it's magic, it's, it's, it's stories from the Quran, it's stories from back home. It's the, it, it incorporates, you know, uh, these very violent events that occurred during the war. Um, but, but then at the same time, it's also, it's a story that's very fast paced and that's, you know, it's a story that's, um, sort of jam packed with as many jokes as I could fit into it as well. And so, um, and so, and so it's one of those stories that I think, you know, when I, when I told my family members about this story for the first time, like their eyes lit up, they're immediately like, what is, you know, and that doesn't always happen <laughs> with my stories. And when I, when I bring them to my family, they can, they can be quite critical, but that was a story where they're like, oh, we want to read that as soon as you finish it. And so, yeah, that's a beloved one. So the last story is the title story, The Haunting of Haji Hotak. So it's a family who's under surveillance, probably by some federal worker in the U.S., and they're watching them basically for signs of terrorism or connections to terrorists back in Afghanistan. And you learn about the whole story. I think there's maybe four children or five children. There's girl, there's daughters and sons. And one of the daughters, there's some line in there about um, she's, she wants to become a, a vegetarian. And you write about how that could lead to 
feminism, Marxism, communism, atheism, hedonism, and eventually cannibalism. Animals are, <laughs> are animals. Her other, her mother explained and humans are humans. And when you begin mixing up the two, you will find yourself kissing chickens and eating children. And so there's a lot of, <laughs> of funny lines in there. And there's also like a deep, I think what, what emerges as a deep compassion for the person who's doing the surveillance, who we never know who they are for the trials and tribulations of this family. And the, the patriarch of the family has some similarities to your father and they are connected to their family back in Afghanistan. They do not appear to be in any way terrorists or spies. (laughs) So in a way, I think you're commenting on a, on a few things. One is just, probably what it feels like sometimes to be looked at as a Muslim and an Afghanistan uh, and, and an Afghani um, in America. And the other sure. is storytelling itself. And where mm-hmm. where are you involved? Because basically the surveillance guy kind of wants to keep watching them. He is yeah. uh, kind of emotionally involved. And it also reminded yeah. me kind of of writing stories. It, it, it's a funny story because like it, it started out initially as, as a joke, you know, there's this onion article where um, essentially it was like um, the, the FBI agent uh, finds himself um, reminiscing on uh on uh, on the on the childhood of one of the people he's one of the children he's watching as they graduating high school for the first time and so he feels like this sense of pride because he's watched him go through you know all of his classes and you know going through puberty and all these difficulties in his life and he feels this sense of connection and 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 pride with that this person that he's surveilling has now you know graduated high school and so that to me it was so funny but then i also like i found it like oddly endearing as well and so like I began to think about this character who you know um, over the course of a story initially would begin very suspicious um, you know would be would be watching the family with the you know uh, based on sort of these these like racist or or Islamophobic uh, stereotypes right Um, but then begins to realize over the course of a story that this is just like you know, it's a, it's it, they're a regular family. They're dealing with their own issues. They're 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 they they have their own complications and their own sorrows. And but they but that they love each other, right? And then over so over the course of the story, he also finds himself feeling this sense of of uh, of attachment to this family, right? But but then as we see with the ending, that sort of that that all sort of falls apart in the end. And so, uh, you know, and I think you're exactly right. Like, I think with that character, uh, you know, I, I, I write it in the second person, um, partly because like, I wanted it to be directly addressed to the reader. I wanted sort of the, the reader to be implicated in this, in this act of surveillance. But at the same time, I also understood the way that I, as the you and the character, was also implicated in this act of surveillance. And and I began to like think back on like my other um, my other stories, and I began to think about the ways that like um, like I, as a writer, can in certain ways like the in the ways that I, as a writer, am also acting sort of as this as like a surveillance agent in in a certain sense. Like I'm very I'm very invasive in my behavior. I want to I want to watch my characters. I want to spy on my characters. I want to uh, you know I want to listen in on their most intimate conversations and secrets. And and so when I was thinking about that, you know, there was something. 
there was something about that that seemed like surprisingly like like insidious, you know, and, and because you know when I'm in general when I'm thinking about my relationship to my characters, I'm thinking about it as like a relationship of empathy, and I'm just trying to empathize with them. I'm just trying to understand them. But when I began to write this story, it sort of made me rethink my relationship to my characters in a little bit, and I, I and I wondered if like in a certain respect what I was doing as 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 a fiction writer, if it wasn't in a certain sense, like invasive, if it wasn't in a certain sense, you know, not only was I trying to understand them and to empathize with them, but that I, I began to like think about my own motivations and my own intentions. And I wondered if there wasn't like this way that I was trying to to dominate them in my attempt to understand them or my attempt to know them. And so and so these were the questions that I was sort of grappling with in the story, my my own relationship to the surveillance agent. But then it was also something that I wanted my reader to sort of like grapple with as well. And and so it's it's this thing that I went back and forth on, you know, it's not, you know, it's something that that I continue to struggle with that I continue to, to think through. Um uh but uh, uh but but I guess what why the story was important to me was that it it made me it made me begin to ask questions of myself that I hadn't considered yet. And so, you know, um uh, 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 I think Flannery O'Connor has this line where she says, um I don't know what I think until I begin to write it down. I think I sort of had that same moment where the actual writing of the story made me begin to question my own perspective in a way in a way that I think is is ultimately healthy. Is there something that you hope that your readers walk away with? You know, I think really it, it does come back to like that the, that point that I was just making. I think, you know, if my if my readers uh, with this story in particular, but with the, with the collection as a whole, if my readers walk away from my stories, um, just beginning to question their own perspectives, their own viewpoints, their own, um, you know, understanding, um, not only of, you know, Afghanistan or or or, or the Afghan diaspora, but like. But 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 to begin to question their own position as a reader or as an American or um, or 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 as themselves, like as 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 writers or as storytellers, like for me, that would be I think that would be the the central goal. Like, I think, you know, when when I'm entering my stories, when I'm um, uh, when I'm thinking through the story, my own my own stories, it's always with this. It's this great deal of questioning. Like I when I go into a story, there's a lot of bumbling around is uh, there's this quote from from Barry Hanna um, who says you know a lot of mistakes that that young writers make is that they're they're trying to be um, wise in their storytelling they try to sound as wise as possible and he says but for me when I go into a story I'm just trying to be a mad fool I'm just wandering around the story trying to figure it out and I found that I found that uh, you know I found that quotation to be um, very true, or at least, uh, you know, very inspirational for my own writing, you know, now, so that now when I go into a story, it's not with this, this idea that I, that I have anything to teach anybody or, or that I'm, you know, more, more profound or wise than anyone else. But, but when I go into a story, I'm, I'm going in like, like a mad fool. I'm just trying to figure out what's happening in this world. I'm just trying to figure out these characters and, and, and I'm going to stumble around and I'm going to mess up, but, but at least I'm, at least I'm wondering, at least I'm exploring, at least I'm questioning myself and, 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 and the story itself. And so if a reader can come away from that, just, you know, with a few more questions in their head, I think, 
I think I, I will have accomplished what I wanted to. <laughs> and I don't know if you wrote all these stories after your novel came out or if they were b- bookended, be- some before, some after, but I'm wondering if you, if when you finish this collection, if you learn something about writing. That's an excellent question. Um, you know, uh, 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 most of the stories I did write after after the novel, um, I think the the main thing that I learned from uh, uh, from this collection was um, was I think I became more confident in my ability to to experiment with form um, in my stories. I think that's one of the things that I love about short stories in general is that because you're going into each story and it's 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 its own little universe right it's its own um it's its own world and um and every time you go into the world uh i feel like um i I be i i sort of taught myself that you I, i can be sort of as i can be sort of as experimental or as um or as free to um, to work with my stories in their own way as possible in the beginning, right? You know, uh, I, I, I try not to, I try not to like limit myself in terms of form, in terms of what I can explore in my stories. And so, um, as long as ultimately I can figure out how the form is going to benefit the characters and, and to benefit the story as a whole, right? And so that's one thing where you know, when I first when I was writing the novel. Um, it's you know the novel is entirely in first person. Um, certain elements of the lo- novel, it's it's approaching like like fantasy, but um, but uh, but uh, but I found myself sort of trapped within the form of the novel itself for such a long time. Um, it, it was uh, it, it was it was sort of it was sort of uh, it was sort of terrible in a lot of ways. Um, but with the short story, because each story sort of feels like its own universe, its own adventure, I found myself like feeling liberated to just experiment with it and to and to explore what I can do with each of these stories in terms of form, and then and then to see what what that it can accomplish for my characters as a whole. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? So this is from um, my my favorite novel, um, One Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, it's fairly early on in the text. <laughs> they went down along the stony bank of the river to the place where years before they had found the soldier's armor. And from there, they went into the woods along a path between wild orange trees. At the end of the first week, they killed and roasted a deer, but they agreed to eat only half of it and salt the rest for the days that lay ahead. With that precaution, they tried to postpone the necessity of having to eat macaws, whose blue flesh had a harsh and musky taste. Then for more than 10 days, they did not see the sun again. The ground became soft and damp like volcanic ash, and the vegetation was thicker and thicker, and the cries of the birds and the uproar of the monkeys became more and more remote, and the world became eternally sad. The men on the expedition felt overwhelmed by their most ancient memories in that paradise of dampness and silence, going back to before original sin. As their boots sank into pools of steaming oil and the machetes destroyed bloody lilies and golden salamanders, for a week, Almost without speaking, they went ahead like sleepwalkers through a universe of grief lighted only by the tenuous reflection of luminous insects, and their lungs were overwhelmed by a suffocating smell of blood. Do you want to share why you chose that? So this is a passage that um, that I that I've taught to my students before um, as a way to 
um, as a way to demonstrate how one goes about uh, writing summary in a way that um, that makes sure that it's that it maintains sort of a um, a, a visual language, right? That uh, I was trying to show them how uh, Marquez is able to move through time so quickly while still rooting his uh, his reader in in detail and in uh, visual images and and whatever else, you know. So. Um, so, so it, one of the things that I do is I underline for them, you know, that um, there's so much emphasis upon physical detail. This is almost like, you know, it's it's more than a month's worth of time in a single paragraph, but we're also being given, you know, all these like vivid visual details: the stony bank of the river, um, the the wild orange trees, um, the the macaws whose blue flesh had a harsh and musky taste, um, the 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 soft and damp ground like volcanic ash. Um, um, the the pools of steaming oil and so uh, and so so what happens here and I was trying to demonstrate to them that um, what Marquez is accomplishing here is that he's um, the, the central the visual uh, the the language here it's um, it's 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 benefiting it's approaching all of these different senses at the same time you're you're hearing um, the 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 scene you're he you're seeing um, the details you're you're tasting. The smell of the macaws and um and so and so i think it's it's just um it, it's one of these passages that uh when i go back and i'm trying to figure out how to move through time quickly in a way that still orients and roots my readers in detail and in place and in uh, visual images um this is this is the passage that i that i tend to go to can you read something you wrote that may, may be tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft yeah, so this is from um, this is from the the latter portions of the tale of Dolly's reversion. Um, it's Shakoko uh, uh, and her son Dolly. They're sitting up in a tree together, um, and uh, and and they're beginning to discuss the um, the assassination of uh, of her brothers. <clears throat> Remember, Dolly said, it was snowing that night. Most likely, the assassins wouldn't have been able to see their faces just the headlights of their vehicle. How many of them were there? At least two, one to keep lookout and another to aim. Besides, it was freezing. They kept each other warm then. They might have been huddled together, the assassins, just moments before the hit. Then what? They would have waited for the headlights to fall forth from the alley, and then the shooter would have fired from this very tree branch before fleeing into the fields below. Are you certain? Dully turned and nodded, but was no longer sure. Fahim and Kadim were shot from close range, Shakuko said. Your assassins might have waited in this tree. They might have huddled on this very tree branch, but they went up close for the final act. Dully closed his notebook and sat up and faced his mother. Do you want to share more about that? So this is one of those passages I, I mentioned, um, you know, a little bit earlier that I actually I had a great deal of trouble with the story. I think it, it, it must have went through like at least like 40 different drafts. The first draft of the story I turned in in 2017 um, to when I was at the IR Writers Workshop. Um, it was 17 pages and um, and I knew like it wasn't anywhere near being finished. And then, you know, I wrote subsequent drafts of it. One draft of it was 80 pages. Another draft of it was 60 pages. I think we it, it ended up coming out to like around 50 pages. Um, but one of the things that I understood from the very beginning was that um, the story was leading up to this confrontational moment between Dully and his mother. 
And it was a scene that in the early drafts of the story, in fact, in many drafts of my story, I had it, I couldn't write this scene. I kept skipping over it. I, I, I would summarize over the scene and just keep moving toward, toward sort of that, the, the penultimate conclusion of the story. And, um, but, uh, but, but I understood and with the help of actually some really great instructors and readers, um, I understood that that I needed to linger here with these characters in this space, in this scene. And so, um, and so it just, you know, it's one of those things where I have such a tendency toward writing very fast paced toward like propulsive momentum, uh, momentous writing that, that I sometimes find a great deal of difficulty to just slow down and linger with my characters. And so I'm very, I'm very proud of this scene in particular, because it took such a long time for me to get here. And then, um, but, but when I finally slowed down enough and I finally, you know, I sat up with Dully and Shakoko in that tree and I really listened to them. And then I, I really, it really seemed to me like, this is the conversation that they would have in this moment because it not only encapsulated sort of this this shared memory that they had, um, th this loss of of, of Shaka Ko's brothers, um, but but then it it also you know the the entire time the 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 conversation is also about like the the nature of violence and the nature of storytelling itself, and so um, that's the reason why I picked it. Where do you write? I write uh, in my office in uh, my apartment at West Sacramento. Um, but if I'm feeling adventurous, I'll drive out to a local coffee shop. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So two things primarily, you know, if the weather is, um, you know, nice, nice enough, I'll go outside and I'll play basketball. That's sort of my, my first love before um, I became, you know, infatuated with storytelling and with writing and with books was it was basketball. Like my first dream was to become, uh, you know, uh, was to enter the NBA. But then, you know, I never grew taller than five, seven and I never really fixed my jump shot. And so um, but basketball is one of those things where I go to the court and I start shooting hoops and, and I and I enter this zone where I can stop thinking about sort of the rest of the world. And I'm just focused on the ball and the hoop. And so it's something that I find. Um, that's something I find, I think, very therapeutic when, especially when I'm having trouble with the story. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My siblings. We have, uh, we have a group chat, uh, my, my, my two little brothers and two little sisters. And, um, and so I'll send them the story first. And so they're super helpful, uh, not only because, you know, they're, they're all very brilliant and they're astute readers, but also because so much of my story, it, it is autobiographical. It is dealing with personal family history. So they can sort of give me um, a, a very particular gauge on, you know, am I going too far with a particular depiction of a particular character? Am I getting things right? Is it funny? Is it, am I, you know, am I capturing a particular character? And so, so yeah, it's, it's my brothers and sisters first. How have you dealt with rejection? Initially, you know, not very well. Um, when I was submitting on my own early on in my career, you know, I got absolutely nothing published. It was it was hundreds and hundreds of submissions and just one rejection after another. And I found it, you know, incredibly um uh, you know, debilitating. I, I really, I really took it to heart. Um, uh, but, but, you know, I kept up, uh, submitting stories and, and, but it wasn't until, you know, I actually, you know, I, I, I began studying with Ian Lee at UC Davis. She helped me get my first story published since then. Um, you know, I've, I've got my agent now and she helps me get my stories published. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, when I've had discussions with my agent and with, um, and with some of my mentors, 
they've sort of they've emphasized to me that we're what we're trying to do here with 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 the stories and with the novels and with the books is we're trying to build like an entire career it's going to be it's going to be a journey and so um and so you know when we you know when we get now when i when i don't get published somewhere if i don't make a certain list or whatever else it is um i'm i sort of keep in mind that the scope of the story as a whole instead of this one little episode and what is your favorite word this is a, this was a really difficult question. I I would say um, one of my favorite words is is beloved. Um, it's a it's a word that when I was younger and when I read it, I read it as beloved, and and it didn't it didn't you know it didn't hit me that hard. But when I when I first when I began to understand that it's actually there's actually three syllables in the word. It's beloved. Um, it it takes on like um, a special sort of like. Um, th there's an extra rhythm there. There's an extra extra sense of musicality there, and the word just through that one extra syllable, it became so much more beautiful to me. And I think that it, I think that really gets at sort of like um, the the heart of my relationship to language overall. That like you know you you put in one extra syllable in a particular sentence, and all of a sudden it goes from being choppy to being sort of um, musical. It becomes rhythmic. It becomes it becomes poetry. And so um, and so for me, beloved. It sort of uh, uh, it sort of encapsulates that, and then and then of course it's also the title of one of my favorite novels ever, so that helps as well. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm I'm really appreciative, and thank you for talking about your collection with me. Thank you so much for having me. This is a total honor, and uh, and you know I completely enjoyed our conversation. If you like today's show with Jamil John Kochai, author of the short story collection The Haunting of Haji Hotak and other stories. Check out my interview with Amitav Ghosh on his novel, Gun Island. We talked about the uncanny effects stories have, folktales, and writing about the world without being pedantic. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.